Welcome to the 15th episode of Room 106. I'm Richard Garlick from Planning Magazine. And I'm John Gagan, also from Planning Magazine. Every fortnight we enter Room 106, the information overload torture chamber into which all new planning information is fed and extract the key things you need to know. With roomfuls of levelling up bill paperwork still to wade through, we're again joined by an extra pair of hands in the form of planning reporter Samantha Eckford. Hello, Sam. Hello, John. Hello, Richard. Hello, Sam. So, coming up, the key issues from the past fortnight. We'll explore the implications of the government's intention to drop the five-year housing land supply requirement for authorities with up-to-date local plans. We'll ask how the levelling up bill proposals would change the current system of planning enforcement. And, moving away from the bill, we'll find out what the latest government data tells us about which authorities are granting the least and the most permissions for self-built housing. And in our deep dive section, I'll be talking to our regular correspondent, David Blackman, about the implications of the planning inspectorate's new goals in terms of the speed of its decision-making. By the end of the show, you should know enough to hold your own at your local civic society's Jubilee Cream Tea. So, time to face the music. Ready to go in? I guess so. Guess so. Well, here we are again in Room 106, the repository in which all new planning information collects. Looks as if some of the levelling up paperwork from last time has been digested, but not much. John, you've been looking at one bit of the uh, of the bill, which is the stuff about enforcement. Yes, that's right. So tell us a bit about how the levelling up bill proposals would change the current system of planning enforcement. Well, the bill contains a lot of changes to the enforcement system, and some of them are quite far-reaching. So a government policy paper published alongside the bill so the changes would ensure that planning enforcement works effectively. And one of the key measures is that the bill would extend the period for taking enforcement action to 10 years in all cases. So currently enforcement action can be taken against breaches of planning conditions and most changes of use for up to 10 years after the breach takes place. But unauthorised development and change of use to residential can only be enforced for up to four years after the breach. So this this change would extend that to 10 years in all cases. And according to commentators that we've spoken to about this, this looks like the most significant change in there. The bill also proposes extending the time period for temporary stop notices. So currently it's 28 days, but local authorities would be able to issue them for up to 56 days. It also introduces something called enforcement warning notices, which allow planning authorities to formally warn landowners that a breach has occurred And it gives them an opportunity to remedy it by making a retrospective application. It also increases fines associated with certain planning breaches. And for a certain number of breaches, including breaches of conditions, the fine rises from a maximum of £2,500 to unlimited. And finally, it closes loopholes around enforcement appeals. So it gives the planning inspectorates powers to dismiss appeals in some circumstances where the appellant causes undue delay. And the bill aims to tighten the scope for appeals against enforcement notices. So there's only one opportunity to obtain planning permission retrospectively. Okay, so without being an enforcement expert, it sounds like quite a significant sort of ramping up of uh, of enforcement powers. But what's kind of driven this? What's the government's thinking that's behind this? So the measures designed in the planning white paper back in the summer of 2020, the government said it would 
place more emphasis on the enforcement of planning standards and decisions. So this appears to be the government trying to deliver on that promise to give councils more powers on planning enforcement. Okay, so what happens next in terms of implementation of the measures? So the bill is at a very early stage. It's just been introduced to the House of Commons and is due its second reading on the 8th of June. And you'd expect many of the measures, if they survive the bill's passage, to be fleshed out through secondary legislation and possibly further consultations. And, you know, very broadly, what are the implications for planning authorities, do you think? Well, we spoke to some experts about this and they felt that the proposals appears to go some way towards simplifying what is regarded as a an overly complex planning enforcement system and should result in more enforcement activity by councils. But some of them warned that it risked moving the system away from remedying planning harm, which is meant to be the sort of key objective, towards simply taking enforcement action. And one consultant we spoke to said the result would be is likely to be tying planning enforcement officers up in more work, processing applications rather than actually reducing planning harm. And um, alongside that, there's concern there's, there's no sign of additional resources specifically for planning enforcement teams who've been cut to the bone in the past decade. And this resourcing issue is widely seen as the issue that most directly impacts on the quality of enforcement services. So the government has separately promised to raise planning application fees by about a third, which is likely to bring more money into planning departments. But it's not clear yet if any of that additional funding will go towards enforcement services. Okay, really interesting. And what about for developers? What about the implications for them? Well, the government is keen to get stricter with developers that breach planning laws. That's one of the key objectives behind this. And one of the measures that I mentioned earlier is the um, this proposal for unlimited fines for breaches of conditions on planning permissions. And some of the practitioners we spoke to felt this would create more of a deterrent for developers against breaching conditions. Apparently, many fines now are often just hundreds of pounds, which for a lot of developers, particularly larger developers, that's not much of a deterrent at all. Okay. Now, we haven't got much time left, but of course... Maybe the most eye-catching or one of the most eye-catching elements of the package that was announced around the levelling up bill was the announcement of the government's intention of dropping the five-year housing land supply requirement for authorities with up-to-date local plans. How would this change the system? So currently the MPPF requires all planning authorities to demonstrate a um, five-year pipeline of deliverable housing sites. And where they can't, the penalty is the MPPF's presumption in favour of sustainable development, which means their local housing supply policies are weakened and they're vulnerable to speculative applications. So under the new system, if a council's got an up-to-date local plan, which means five years old or less, then they'd be exempt from that uh, potential penalty. Okay, and how many councils? Do we know how many would be affected? According to the latest figures from the planning spectra, which were updated just over a week ago, 135 planning authorities in England, which is about 43% of the total, have plans that are less than five years old. So they would be, in theory, if, if the measure was to be introduced now, they would benefit from this change. So obviously we don't know when this measure will be introduced, but you know, looking at the current situation, you'd be expecting two-fifths to a half of councils to benefit from it. So that's a big chunk. Okay, and and very quickly, you know, broad implications for planning authorities of, of a change like this? Well, some of the commentators we spoke to said that 
they felt the um, this is a part of a move by the government to tilt the planning system back towards local authority plans and um, you know really emphasise the sort of the plan led system. So currently, the problem is councils can get plans in place, and as part of getting their plan in place, they have to show they have a five year housing land supply. But that can change very quickly. So in theory, within months of getting a, a plan in place, they could be they they could lose that five year supply and therefore be vulnerable to um, applications that are outside of the plan. So now the idea is that council's getting a plan in place. The government's hoping it'll be an really incentive for, for councils to get their plans in place, speed up the local plan system, which at the moment is very slow, and it'll allow councils to focus more on other key parts of their plan and reduce the kind of delays that councils face fighting these kind of speculative appeals and costs. Okay, John. Well, thank you very much. That's fantastic. So the levelling up and regeneration bill is occupying a lot of people's attention at the moment. But just moving away from that, our reporter, Samantha Eckford, has spent time in recent weeks looking at some new data about the extent of self-built housing in England and uh, how much demand there is for it and how many permissions are being given for it. Sam, can I start by asking you just to tell us a little bit about what planning authorities' responsibilities are in terms of custom and self-built housing? Yeah, so the 2016 Housing and Planning Act legally requires local authorities to grant sufficient permissions for self- and custom-built plots to meet local demand. Local demand is measured by the number of people registering on their self- and custom-built registers. Each authority is required to keep and also to publicise this register. Okay, and what does your analysis of the data tell us about which authorities have granted the least self- and custom-build housing permissions? So the data shows that 67 authorities failed to grant a single self-build permission over the 12 months to October 2021. This equates to roughly about one in five English local authorities. Then there were also a further 87 that granted fewer than 10 permissions over the 12-month period. Of the 67 that didn't grant a permission last year, 34 haven't granted a single permission for custom and self-build housing since records began in 2016. Gosh, okay. And are the authorities where these permissions just aren't being granted at all, are they places where there's been no interest? So that does apply to some of the authorities. So, for example, Haringey reported just one individual on its self-build register. Middlesbrough and the Derbyshire Dales have just two. So there are some authorities that have low numbers of individuals and groups on their registers that haven't granted any permissions. However, at the other end of the spectrum, Wickham had the highest number of registrants out of the authorities failing to grant a permission last year, with 518 individuals and groups registered as of October 2021. West Oxfordshire came in second with 496, with Croydon in third with 441. So, as part of the registration process, relevant authorities can request applicants to provide additional information to that required by the legislation. So this can include setting further eligibility requirements like a local connection test or a financial solvency test. They're also free to set fees. While guidance says that this must be on a cost recovery basis, it does appear to vary significantly from location to location. This might help to explain the varying amounts of individuals and groups registered on each authority's database. Okay, uh, there's some suggestion that the charges in some places may be deterring people from registering. Exactly that. Okay, and what reasons do councils with high numbers of registrants, but which are granting low numbers of permissions, 
you know, how do they explain that? So a spokesperson for Croydon Council told me that the register's unrestricted, which means that it receives a lot of interest. They said that the usual challenges in delivering allocated self-build plots across London, so the current housing demand and land scarcity apply. So this accounts for why there were no permissions over the last 12 months. Similarly, a spokesperson for Slough, which hasn't granted any permissions since records began in 2016, told me that their register is also unrestricted. A spokesperson for Brentwood Council, which has the third highest number of registrants out of the authorities yet to grant a self-build permission, said that the authority has not received any self- or custom-build planning applications. Going forward, they said that a new local plan would require a 5% provision of self-build homes on sites with 100 homes or more. Interesting. So there are some places that are saying, yes, we've got lots of people registering, but nobody's actually applying. Yeah. Interesting. So overall, how great is the demand for self-build and custom-build housing? So the latest figures show that across England, more than 44,000 permissions for service plots suitable for self- and custom-build housing have been granted since 2016. Nearly 59,000 individuals and more than 750 groups were on the register as of October 2021, which is 25% more than the total number reported the previous year. So the numbers are growing? Yes. And there was a big report, big review done for government by um, Richard Bacon MP, just remind us what he recommended and where that's got to in terms of the of the sort of policy making process. Yeah, so this report, which was commissioned by Boris Johnson and led by the Conservative MP Richard Bacon, suggested that authorities should be given targets for the provision of plots ready for self-build housing projects, unless they can demonstrate they're already delivering such sites. In the policy paper released alongside the Leveling Up and Regeneration Bill, government said that it would shortly respond to the report's findings. Something to keep an eye on in in the next few weeks, I guess. Yes. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Sam. And many thanks to John for his uh, his comments. And of course, more details of these stories can be found on planningresource.co.uk. But now we need to descend into the basement of Room 106 to find the section in which the details of the planning inspectorate's performance targets are kept and where I'm hoping I'll also find our regular correspondent, David Blackman, who's been looking into these. OK, so I'm, I'm opening the cellar door and picking my way down some very gloomy-looking steps, and I'm looking to find David in the place where the PIN's performance targets are archived. Ah, oh, I think this is the room... Hmm. I can see the documents with the old targets. They look pretty pristine. Doesn't look like anybody's looked at them very closely. Ah, David. Ah, hello, Richard. Hi, David. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, not bad. This is a particularly gloomy recess of uh, of room 106 we find ourselves in, but um, justified by these new targets that have been set for the planning inspectorate. Indeed, yes. So, can you just kick off by telling us what the last PIN's annual report had to say about how it was doing against its then targets. Right. So the last annual report came out in July last year, um, and this didn't make very good reading, albeit we know it was a, um, an unusual year, but it showed that the inspector's performance against its ministerial targets were down in seven out of eight categories, and all but one were missed. So an example would be the target for written representations. Now, it said that uh, just 44% of written reps appeals were dealt 
with within the statutory 14-week target, the target is 80%. So, you know, that puts it in some kind of context where, where they're coming from here. Okay. But they're focusing on changing the targets. I suppose some people might think that, you know, they're moving the goalposts rather than improving the performance. But how are they changing the, the, the targets? So the system's going to be sort of going to be simplified as, as streamlined and cases will be measured in three groups. These are for appeals decided entirely via written reps and, and for those determined via hearings or inquiries and those where there is some ministerial involvement. So just looking at written reps first, what's going to be the target for them and how does it compare to uh, current performance for written reps? Right, OK. So the target is that the majority of appeals should be determined within 16 to 20 weeks. Um, that's one's determined entirely using written evidence. Um, so here, the median, the current median time is 22 weeks. So not too far off there. OK, OK, but it but still will require a, a significant improvement. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And then what about the uh, targets for appeals that are determined down the um, hearing or inquiry route? For both inquiries and hearings, the new target will be 24 to 26 weeks. Again, this compares to 41 weeks for appeals determined by hearings at the moment and 40 weeks for appeals determined by inquiries. Those are both median figures. Okay, that's a dramatic improvement they're looking for there. Yes, indeed, yeah. And then what about the um, what about the goal for decision-making times for called-in cases or, or cases that are recovered by the Secretary of State? That will be 30 weeks. Okay. And how does that compare to the existing? Uh, there's not a... There, the PINs at the moment doesn't publish any figures on... Or, or at least there, there's no figures in the annual report on how that, how that performance measures up. Oh, right. Okay. Okay. So that's one aspect of how they're... There's a new method of measuring um, speed of performance... But they're also putting some other goals in there to try and make sure that there's a focus on speeding up the slowest decisions. Yes. Well, alongside the headline targets, they also say the median figure should be falling in all the categories which we've just been talking about. And as well as that, they say that the appeals in the 90th percentile, that's the by that we mean the 10% of cases that take the longest, should be falling faster than the median. And the ambition here is not only to sort of cut average decision-making times, but it's also to improve the consistency of overall decision-makings, basically to try and sort of cut down on the, the outliers. For example, they say that um, while the typical average time for deciding written representations currently varies between 20 and 30 weeks, some of these can be determined as quickly as eight weeks, others are taking more than a year um, and we're talking there about written representation, so which should be the simplest to, to process. Okay, so they're trying to put particular emphasis on the ones that are taking longest at the moment. Yeah. Any thoughts about the issues that these sort of targets, I mean, people you've spoken to, what, what sort of issues do they think that these new targets might present for participants in the system and for PINs itself? Well, I think the um, a big issue for councils is going to be whether they have sufficient time to prepare the information they require to respond to the appellants in the appeals process. Because at the end of the day, preparing for an appeal is an important part of, of any planning department's activities. But in reality, we know they have all sorts of other pressures as well. In terms of PINs itself, they're going to have to be a lot more rigorous about enforcing timescales. OK. And um, how is PINs using the new targets to try and improve the proportion of appeals that are valid when they're first submitted? Well, here we've got a, an entirely new target. 
So for the first time, the Minister set a, has set a target for appeals to be valid when they're first submitted. Currently, only around 60% of applications are valid at this initial stage. The letter from the Minister says this proportion should rise to at least 85% by 2023-2024. Okay. And uh, do you think that'll present any issues for PINs? Again, I think it's just a, a matter of getting in all the information. And uh, also there are some uh, targets about customer satisfaction and quality assurance. Yes, there's less detail on this, but my understanding from talking to PINs is that this will involve doing on a more systematic basis what PINs does at the moment anyway, but more for its own internal consumption. So along with all these, all these new targets, there have been one or two targets that have been dropped. So anything interesting that PINs is no longer going to have to really worry about? Yes, well, the, at the moment, there are lots of sort of different separate targets for different types of appeal, like planning and enforcement. This will be much more about sort of how the appeal is determined, i.e. whether it's a written representation or, at a, or a hearing or an inquiry. There's also the targets that there's an existing target that fewer than 1% of decisions are subject to a successful legal challenge. So again, that's being dropped. It's quite interesting that that one's been dropped. Uh, I, I wonder, because, you know, it's, it's common to have targets for local authorities on, uh, you know, to be targeted on not having too many of their decisions overturned at appeal. So it's interesting that the um, inspectorate isn't going to have a target about having its decisions overturned in the courts. But uh, that's a that's a bit of an aside. But at the same time as these being announced by Christopher Pincher before he moved on to Pastures New, he also announced sort of something much more, even more ambitious, because these, these targets look quite ambitious, which was that he asked PINs to identify the steps needed to allow most appeals to be decided in less than eight weeks. Indeed, yes. So how would that compare to current performance? Well, I mean, if we look at the current performance... Uh... The typical, I mean, even even a written representation appeals, the median figure for that is around the 21, 22 week target. So, I mean, this would be a, um, a dramatic, <laughs> a dramatic improvement or change in performance for even the, uh, the very, the very simplest appeals, which the inspectorate currently handles. OK, that's interesting. And um, what changes do you think PINs might be likely to look at to make such a, a sort of uh, radical uh, improvement possible? Well, I mean... There would be sort of you know, quite you know, dramatic changes to the inspectors' roles. I mean, one of the things that people were mooting when I was talking to people about this was the opportunities people have to engage in the in the process, such as such as the ability to make further representations. Again, this can cause delays, but so those are the kinds of things which would have to come under the microscope in order to make this kind of new target at all feasible. Okay, and in the um, in the report you did on this for the website, you certainly reported quite a few concerns about this ambition. What sort of downsides do they think this could bring? Well, I think the concerns would be things like: Will local authorities have enough time to respond? Will the the process get too concertinaed? I think there are really sort of strong concerns about the credibility of the very appeal system itself. At the end of the day, a lot of people aren't so concerned about. You know, obviously, timeliness is a is an important factor. But people want to have the right decision and they want to feel that the, the decision has been properly considered. And when you have a process which is so concertinaed as is being mooted here, I think there's a real worry that that credibility will be undermined. Right. OK. There's that famous quote, isn't there, about justice delayed being justice denied. There's a concern that sort of hurried justice might be rough justice. Indeed. Yes. Yes. And, and there's got to be concerns that the, you know, the, the scope for judicial review. If if people don't feel they've, that their decision has been properly considered, then it may just end up in the courts. So 
robbing Peter to pay Paul, effectively. Okay, well, thank you very much indeed for that, David. And am I right in thinking that not these grander ambitions, but the earlier changes we were talking about, those changes have been implemented as of April? That's right, yes. Fantastic. Okay, well, thank you very much indeed, David. I will leave you in this uh, dark corner of Room 106 and um, look forward to uh, to encountering you in another part of the of the chamber soon. Very good. Thank you very much. See you soon. Cheers, David. Right, now to find John again, so he can select his reader's choice, the story that's caught the eye of our readers without necessarily being a portentous planning issue. Ah, there he is. Hi, John. Hi, Richard. So what have you got for us uh, in this edition? My quirky story of the week is an item we covered in our newspaper roundup last week. And it's a report in one of the national newspapers about homeowners who spent years living on an unfinished estate in Nottinghamshire. And they've apparently been unable to get in contact with the house builder behind it. And according to the report, the, the estate was given planning permission in 2019. All the homes were completed two years later. But a lot of the residents are complaining that pavements, footpaths, allotments and the children's play area on the estate are, are in what they call a treacherous state. And um, the newspaper got in touch with the developer who said that they blamed the contractors for not progressing the remaining works. And they promised that all the um, all the works would be done in accordance with the planning conditions. OK, well, thanks very much, John. I think our work is done. Let's get out before there are any more announcements or decisions. Great. Well, that's another fortnight summarised. Yes. We'll be back in two weeks to give you another update on the key things happening in the sector. Our thanks to producer Sophie King and Daisy Chaku from Rethink. And in the meantime, don't forget to subscribe wherever you normally get your podcasts. And to get a daily bulletin of planning news, plus weekly analysis specialist bulletins and our quarterly print magazine subscribe at planningresource.co.uk thanks for listening goodbye